usually one out of every 60 or 70 screenplays you read uh, really has something that makes you stick with it to the end, you know. I'm one of these, you know, I'll read the first 10 pages and maybe the last two or three pages, you know, just to see. Because you can kind of tell usually. And I was engrossed, you know, from the moment I started the script. And uh, it's one of the best screenplays I've ever read. film fans, welcome back to a brand new, exciting episode of Not The Bomb Podcast. This is the podcast where we go back and talk about movies that bomb theatrically or maybe the critics just didn't like. Brad, uh, it's kind of a depressing <laughs> week. I mean, Thanksgiving's over, but more importantly, this is this is the final entry of November, right? Yeah, and I, I didn't know if I was going to make it to the end of November. I've been deathly ill, so I'm glad to see the other side of Thanksgiving. Yes, I, I've been worried about you. It was a little touch and go there during the holidays, but uh, I'm glad you survived. I'm glad you're on the mend. Let me uh, <clears throat> let the listeners know that you just don't go around making out with people. It'll it'll catch up with you. Yeah, random people. Um, yeah, that's that's just not a good idea. It's not. Yeah, it's not. Well, hey, let's talk about uh, film noir, but more importantly, let's introduce we. I'm kind of excited because anytime we get somebody new, we get to play our little five questions game, but we, we've got a new person joining the show. Do you want to do the introductions? Yeah, we have our buddy, uh, Pat Smith, Patrick or Pat. Uh, how are you, sir? Good, good. Thanks for having me. Uh, you're, a, you're a numbers guy like Troy and I, so we're going to get real nerdy today. <laughs> it's It is shocking how much fun it is. Yeah, you know, uh, t- let's talk <laughs> analytics. Let's not. That yeah. that's that's for the day stuff. But yeah, we we uh, Pat is somebody that reached out to us, and we've been talking to for a long time. And um, as a matter of fact, he is he is a numbers guy. So we all had something very much in common. But more importantly, he Pat, liked our show. So yeah, he liked our better. show, <laughs> which was like, hey, come on and, and let's talk movies. But Pat, you know the gave drill. It a rating, like that was, you know, that was the big thing. Gave it a rating, helped out the analytics that way. So that was a good part. You know, good point. We'll, we're going to have to push that at the end of the show. Like, folks, you need to, you need to, like, do more thumbs up. What is it? Hit that. No, that's a YouTube thing. No, that's YouTube. Uh, yeah. Five star review on Apple. Yeah. Uh, podcast. Yeah, we're you, might, you podcast. might be able to come on the show later. <laughs> there you go. There, there's your, there's your prize. But <laughs> hey, one of the best things that I think Brad and I ever uh, sort of came up with was. Uh, just a little exercise to say, hey, before we start talking movies, let's let's get to know the person first and and find out what they like. And uh, we ask them five questions. There's there's no wrong answers, but Brad and I reserve the right to make fun of you. So um, I'm going to start with the first one, and I love this question because it trips people up. Uh, and and it's not it's not as easy as like, hey, what's your favorite movie of all time? But here we go. What is your favorite film 
from your least favorite genre? Oh, that is a tough, um, that is a really good one. So I would say that my least favorite genre is like the, the slasher horror flicks. Oh, um, okay. So it, it's just, it's not something that I've ever really enjoyed watching or anything like that. So I don't have a lot of like positive memories with it or anything like that. And so I would say that would be my least favorite genre. But then um, boy, my favorite film from that genre, um, you know, it, it sounds corny and it sounds kind of, it, but I, I do love Scream. Like I just, yeah, you do. It, it's such <laughs> like I'm a child of the 90s. I just like it's just part of like that. I was, you know, what, 13, 14 when it came out. And I just remember seeing it and like all those different pieces. So it's always one that I watch. And we actually just got done watching like the first four in the series um, back in October. Um, but it's always one that I can go back to and just I I don't know. I just always like watching Scream. So that would be my probably my favorite movie from my least favorite genre. So I, I have to ask a quick follow up to that is. Is it the slasher like subgenre itself or is it horror films? It's the slasher subgenre itself. Cause okay. I like, so zombie horror films. I love zombie horror films. Oh, okay. Um, alien horror films, like those types of movies. I love that subgenre, but looking at like the slasher subgenre, I just, I can't, it's just not that much fun. Like I don't, it's just not something I've ever gotten into. Okay. That's fair. Uh, Brad, you got the next one. Well, Patrick and I are now best friends. Uh, it's <laughs> we're, so, we're uh, always what, best friends with Patrick. What are you talking about? Uh, what is your favorite decade in film and why? I, I'll, uh, you know, I, I kind of hinted at this in my last answer, but I'm a child of the 90s. I, you know, that's when I really came of age and that's when I really started enjoying movies and watching more movies. Um, I think the... I, I think when you look at the 90s and you look at the decade as a whole, where it was going from, you know, the early 90s that were so still kind of in the 80s, still trying to figure out what they want to do, what they want to look like. And then the rise of the independent film oh, yeah. and some of the directors that came out of that in the mid 90s. And then, you know, you go with seven, you're going with the usual suspects, like those types of movies. And then you come to, you know, 1999, which I think is potentially one of the best years of film ever with, you know, movies like fight club and, and different movies like that, that came out in 99. Like that's by far my favorite decade. And that was, like I said, it was the decade I grew up in. And so like, I have those memories, um, but then also to just seeing the, the variety of movies and the, the way that they came about was just so interesting to me. That's a, that's a darn good answer. I like that. <laughs> it's quantifiable too. You, you threw examples and everything out there. Data. I love it. <laughs> two for two. With two for me, two. Pat. Yeah. Uh, Troy, you're next. Oh yeah. Yeah. Okay. So this one's specific to the genre we're talking about this month. So what is your favorite thing about film noir? Uh, my favorite thing about film noir is you can see the people making bad decisions <laughs> <laughs> and you know that they're bad decisions and like, you know, like this is just a bad decision that you're doing and you're seeing this and you know, we will talk about it in the movie that we're talking about tonight with a simple plan. But, 
you just see people, you know, like, how can I do this? And like how one bad decision leads to the next bad decision, which leads to the next bad. Like, it's just, it's just this cascading waterfall of bad decisions. And that's what I love watching about noir films and seeing like thinking, would I do anything different? What would I do in this situation? And that's, that's the fun part to me. I like that. It's it's almost like, hey, I could get away with this because I wouldn't have made that decision. <laughs> I would do something different. I, I so want to say the moment you're like, oh, maybe I would have done that. Like, I mean, and so it, you know, I don't, I don't know if I would have killed anybody, but you know, like that's it. It's still one of those things where it's just like you see yourself in those situations, and you see you're like, what would I do in that situation of making that bad decision? Oh, 100%. I, I do want to ask that question of you, Brad, since since we're talking film noir. Like, what what has been your favorite thing? about film noir um or or maybe it's something new that you discovered this month uh i think it's just always been the like the investigative part of it just always having some sort of i guess you can call it MacGuffin, but like we're always going for something there's always something we're searching for or looking for or trying to solve um a lot of them center around you know murder mysteries and things like that i just like that whole hearing your your protagonists uh in their inner monologue figure out stuff as they go along um it's it's sort of cheesy because we we knock films for like narration and things but in film noir just feels like it fits um so i i I always have been attracted to that because i feel like noir films sort of i don't know if they invented it but they sure did perfect it okay Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I'm going to say the thing that I've always loved, and, and it's been solidified by the movies we've watched this month, it's the dialogue. Yeah, the dialogue mean, also helps. The screenplays are always um, pretty solid, or even when they're not solid, I think they get elevated by some great exchanges or monologues. And I think it goes to a little bit what you're talking about, Patrick, is that you're, you might be watching good people make, making bad decisions or you know people who live in the gray area making just dumb decisions. But it's the dialogue or even the voiceover or the internal monologue of their justifications that are really fascinating and interesting. And then I love how they write women in film noir and they become very just uh, equal opportunists in some very bad situations. And in the movie we talked about last week, the um, the original Narrow Margin some of the best dialogue that you can find, but I love that exchange and I love um, some of the powerful point of views that come into conflict with each other. And that, that really just heightens the dialogue, but that that's been always my favorite thing. And I think this month has really highlighted that, especially with the films that we picked. All right, Brad, you've got question number four. Yeah. Yes. What is the first movie you remember seeing in the theater? Oh, uh, First, the land before time. Little Foot's Adventures, yes. Yeah, like I like that's the first one that I remember go seeing, and I uh, it was we went to go see it. I, I think it was right during the Super Bowl, and I remember my dad was like, "Why are we going to watch a movie right now? But we should be watching the Super Bowl." So I just I remember that piece about it, but that was the first movie that I have a a vivid memory of watching, um, on the big screen. Awesome. Have you, have you introduced your kids to it? I mean, have, have they had that opportunity to watch it? 
Yeah, we, you know, we definitely needed something to do during COVID. And so it was watching a lot of movies from our childhood. So we, we watched Land Before Time and a lot of those different movies. So, yeah, we've definitely done that. That's, That's awesome. a Don Bluth film, right? Didn't he direct that? Yeah, I think so. Or yeah. at least it was a production yeah. company. Yeah. Okay. Uh, I got the last one. Uh, what you. is your favorite movie bomb that you would recommend to everybody? Um, <laughs> Edge of Tomorrow. Hands down. By far one of like the most um, unexpected movies that I've ever watched and just enjoyed the hell out of it. I love that movie. And Tom Cruise is just a freak for so many different reasons. And just the stunts that he does in that movie, the action, the the writing and the dialogue and just the the story that went into that movie. I thought I thought that was such a great movie that. I don't know if it bombed overall, but it definitely bond, bombed domestically. And so I think that that's one that I I would always tell people to watch The Edge of Tomorrow. Yeah, we are best friends. You picked a Tom Cruise movie. That's amazing. <laughs> <laughs> He's such a weirdo, but man, does he make good movies. Uh, well, Emily yeah. Blunt's amazing in that as well. It's a, it, Doug Lyman's a good director. I mean, it's it's got the recipe for being, you know, behind the camera, in front of the camera, just a good movie. And it's it's got another recipe that we'll talk about with with Bill Paxton, too. And we'll we'll talk about that. But like, that's another big part of like why I love that movie is is his character and just everything in that movie I thought was was I just love the story. And again, it's an alien movie. So I love that. Like all those different pieces just came together. And I think that that's a great movie. Oh man, that's a that's a great recommendation. Well, what are we talking about tonight, Brad? We're we're doing uh, neo noir, and we're doing um, something from the '90s. Actually, it's it's a nice little bookend to where we started the month, right? Yeah. Um, so we are doing a film that stars Billy Bob Thornton and Bill Paxton, who, if you remember our first film of the month, Troy, what did we do? One false move with we did one false move with yeah. Billy Bob Thornton and Bill Paxton. So to bring it all full circle, we are doing a simple plan from 1998 directed by one Sam Raimi. Yes. So before we talk about the people behind the camera and in front of the camera, let's go back to 1998. And Brad, tell us how this sucker did when it was uh, kind of pushed out into the movie theaters. So, uh, so a simple plan, not to be confused with simple play in the band, Joy, did you, did you ever listen to simple play in the band? I did. Uh, yep, kind of I an did. emo band. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, released December 11th, 1998 in a limited release gets a wide release in January 22 of 1999. Uh, so you can kind of pick the, the year that it kind of comes out, uh, budget of $17 million. It's total box office run. It's $16.3 million. Um, we'll do the wide release on the uh, opening weekend because the the limited is not fair. It comes in 10th place and it makes $3.4 million. Oh, and it gets beat by a lot of films. I believe I've seen all of these more than once. It gets beat out by Varsity Blues, Patch Adams, A Civil Action, The Thin Red Line, Stepmom, at first sight, you've got mail, the Prince of Egypt, and Shakespeare in Love. Oh, okay, man, that's a solid, <clears throat> a solid, solid release. month. Yeah. Uh, what we do have, Troy, is we have a critically acclaimed film. 
we are sitting at a 90% with the critics and an 81% with the audience. Um, yeah. A riveting crime thriller filled with emotional tension is what the critics consensus says. And finally, oh, films you could have, what you don't, you don't have sorry. another review. There's no movie guide. I'm oh, sorry. They, they okay. did not. They did not. I know. What about a negative two? It, it seems like it's always negative two. Pagan well, world views. Pagan world views. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but there might have been some like, I don't know. There's a lot of making bad decisions and not ask, asking God for any sort of guidance. So maybe negative three. But there is a lot of biblical references in it. Cain and Abel, like yeah. you know, like okay. all of those. There we go. Samaritan, like all oh. those different things. Okay, so. but it's not heavy-handed, so they would not have picked up on that. Ooh, uh, that's true, man. I I want to hear you two debate this. Like, what would yeah. be the movie guide <laughs> review? <laughs> Uh, so films you could have seen December, we'll go with December. Well, do we want to do December or January? Well, so real quick, uh, it's released limited, I assume for the Oscars, right? That's usually yes. the tactic. Yes. Okay. So uh, yeah, let's do films of 1999 just yeah. because, uh, we've got, uh, oh boy at first sight, the six cents. Six cents on its way to six hundred and seventy-two million dollars. Dang. Uh Varsity Blues, Virus, uh, Gloria, and she's all that. Okay. Uh Virus might show up on the show at one point. Yes. That's the Jamie oh, Lee yes. Curtis yes, one, right? Will. Okay. Yes, it will. Well, let let's talk about the people, the creative teams. We gotta start with director Sam Raimi. I'm gonna kick it over to you, Patrick. Where do you fall with Sam Raimi? Big fan or just He's okay. I, I'm I'm in between the the he's okay to big fan. I love you know like I love um like the the first two Spider Man movies. You know those two were fantastic. Um, I remember the first time watching Army of Darkness and just being like, oh my god, what did I just watch? And like loving Army of Darkness, but then not loving everything that he's done so like i'm i'm in between that like he's okay to he's great range like i he puts out good things but then i don't think he's one where i'm gonna be like oh man it's the latest sam raimi i'm gonna go see that oh okay what about you brad i i'm on the camp that i i love sam raimi it minus a few things Spider-Man three, we can forgive because that was a too big to fail film. The studio was going to be involved in that. Um, I think you could almost say the same thing for like multiverse of madness. Mm-hmm. Um, but then like Oz, the great and powerful is not very good, but then, you know, drag me to hell is pretty great. This is a weird time for him because the quick and the dead, I, I really like. And if you go back and watch that, that, that cast is like absolutely stacked. Um, and then he does Simple Plan, and then he does For the Love of the Game, which I, as a baseball fan, love that movie. But then he does The Gift after that, and you're like, okay. And then he gets Spider-Man, and so he kind of changes. But he's kind of got, like, two careers, right? Because he gets The Evil Dead, Evil Dead 2. Um, then he gets to do Dark Man. Um, and then, of course, he does Army of Darkness. Then that kind of gives him some sort of leeway to do some other stuff. It, it it seems when he does films for studios, maybe the quality isn't there all the time. Uh, but when he kind of gets to to try, um, I don't know. I, I kind of liked it when he was trying to do serious films like The Quick and the Dead and 
simple playing and for the love of the game, like trying to stretch his wings a little bit. But I, 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 I think overall his batting average might not be as high as people think, but I think his hits are definitely really, really high. Yeah, I, I'm in the camp. I love him. I will say there's there seems to be when his budgets get to a certain point and you know the producers and the studios are heavily evolved in some of the creative decisions, he, he might he might be a great studio player and not push back. I've heard he's like one of the nicest people in the entire world. Like, yeah, I was hearing a story where he just calls everyone buddy and like he's just like a really nice guy. So you might be right. He might just like lay over for studios. Yeah. And, and that's perfectly fine. I mean, he, he, he gets the job done and even in stuff like the Dr. Strange film that he did, I, I, I really not a huge fan of that, but they're, but the highs that are in there are high. Um, they're, they're really good. Uh, I, I just, I got a feeling at some point, somebody's going to come back and go, I don't think we gave Sam Raimi enough love as a director outside of like his horror output. I mean, I grew up on the evil dead films, so I absolutely adore those. But when you look at that run that you just talked about from like a, the quick and the dead all the way up to the gift, um, I think there are some really huge underrated gems in there. And we're going to talk about one tonight, but I got a feeling there's going to be at some point in maybe film criticism history, somebody's going to come back around and go, Hey, we didn't give Sam Raimi enough love in those um, in the nineties and early two thousands when, when he's working on that stuff. And I, I would love to see, I mean, this is the director I would love to see him go back to that independent route um, and do more films like the one we're going to talk about tonight and do some dramatic stuff. Cause I, I, I mean, he's, he's friends with the Coen brothers, right? Uh-huh. So uh, he's, he's a great producer. He, he developed a lot of stuff that um, from a pop culture perspective um, we all adore, but as a director, I just, I, I don't, I, I don't want to say he's underappreciated because the horror community loves him, but I think for a serious output, I think he might be underappreciated. I don't, I don't know if that's, I don't know if you guys no, I think agree. That, I think that's right. I think the horror community absolutely loves Sam Raimi. And there's going to be people who think Spider-Man two is the best yeah. superhero film of all time, uh, yeah. which they're, they might not be wrong. Uh, mm-hmm. But then other people might not appreciate him enough. Okay. And I really wonder like, you know, like you were saying where he is just, such a nice person, such a nice guy, friends with everybody. Like he lived in an apartment with, you know, the Cohen brothers and Holly Hunter and Kathy Bates and like all these different people that are seen as these great actors, actors and actresses that I, it is just crazy to see like the two different dichotomies in his career where it is the horror. And then it is the the stuff that we're going to be talking about tonight. And he does both of them really well. Yeah. Um, but then when it comes, like you said, with the studio interference and the studio additions, it just makes it too much. Yeah, I, I agree. I, I, I wonder, I mean, we'll, we'll talk about the behind the scenes on this one, but there, there may be a new trend that we'll probably call out of, uh, Hey, when you see this, the chances are, it's going to be a bomb when we get into production and development, but let's talk about some of the other people, uh, behind the camera screenplays by Scott B Smith. It's based on his novel. So Scott Smith, um, what's interesting is he did a simple plan in 98 and then another film that I kind of like, which he also wrote the book to was the ruins from 2008, uh, interesting little horror film, um, still working today. Some other stuff that's on his resume is Siberia from 2019 
and I think a TV show that he helped create called The Peripheral, and it was uh, something that came out in 2022. The cinematography is by Alar Kivilo. So in the 90s, he was doing a ton of television movies. Uh, the, the one thing that popped out on his resume, I don't know if you guys have seen this. I, I kind of like this film. It's an interesting little sci-fi thriller frequency from 2000 with Dennis Quaid and Chim, uh, how do you, is it Cap Caviezel? Caviezel. That's right. Okay. Uh, Jesus Christ himself. Okay. Oh yeah, that's right. That he's, guy. Sa- he's saving all those kids too, Troy. Yeah, don't yeah, yeah. That. that's right. Um, another interesting person that pops up in the credits is music by Danny Elfman. So, uh, an amazing composer, but if you look at what he was working on at this time period, so 97 was men in black. 97 was also flubber. 97 was also goodwill hunting 98. He does a simple plan, a civil action 99 instinct. He also does anywhere bit here in 99 and sleep sleepy hollow 99. I mean, Danny Elfman just didn't turn anything down. It it seems like, well, and, and to not step on the music in this one, but I mean, this music is not a Danny Elf. It doesn't sound like Danny Elfman that I know. Oh yeah. And it is fucking amazing. Also, um, in this film, he meets his future wife, Bridget Fonda. Oh, and yeah. uh, she pretty much kind of hangs it up. I mean, she does a few things after this, but they meet here and get married and she kind of retires from acting. Yeah, that's a good point. Uh, let's talk about the people in front of the camera. This probably be a short conversation, but we, we want to get Patrick's view on this. So, We've talked ad nauseum when we talked about one false move with Bill about Bill Paxton and Billy Bob Thornton. So just just a little context of what was going on in each one's career. Bill Paxton had did Titanic in '97, A Simple Plan in '98, Mighty Joe Young came out the same year in '98, and then follows that up with U five seven one in two thousand. Billy Bob Thornton and I totally forgot about this in '97. He works on a film. I, I'm curious if either of you have seen this. An Alan Smithy film, Burn Hollywood Burn, starring Jackie Chan, Sylvester Stallone, Arnold Schwarzenegger, Whippy Goldberg. No? Nobody? That is a new one to me. That might have to go on the list. You won't be able to find it. <laughs> it's, <Okay. laughs> it's terrible. Um, I'll see if I can get you a copy if you want to see it, Patrick. Um, but then he does primary callers in, in 98 homegrown in 98 Armageddon in 98, a simple plane in 98 and then pushing 10 to 99. So, um, Brad and I got to share our views on these two. I want to kick it over to you, Patrick. What, what are your thoughts on Billy Bob Thornton and Bill Paxton? So I'll, I'll start with Bill Paxton first. So I, um, love Bill Paxton in a secondary role as a leading person where he's the person on camera, the majority of the time I'm, I'm indifferent about it, but when he is that secondary person that can come in and deliver a couple of lines and just kill those lines, I'm thinking of like, you know, weird science, um, Terminator, um, where he's, um, the aliens, you know, like he's so good in those types of roles or uh, true lies. I think he's amazing <laughs> in true lies as yeah. the used car salesman. Like he's amazing in those types of roles. And then when he gets into the leading roles, I think he's fine, but it's not, it's not my favorite Bill Paxton moments where he's the leading man in, you know, Twister or, 
even in, in even in a simple plan, like I don't think he's the best part of this movie where as in those other movies where he's the secondary character, he's such an integral part of the movie. Okay. That's fair. I, I get that. Um, and then with Bill, uh, Billy Bob, um, like I, I'm not as keen on Billy Bob's comedic work. So like Mr. Woodchuck, um, school for scoundrels, the bad Santas. I'm like, okay, it's funny for about five minutes. And then it's like, okay, let's, let's maybe try something different. Um, but in roles like this, I think Billy Bob is fantastic in these dramatic roles where he's allowed to sort of play with the character and sort of have layers on those different characters. So obviously Sling Blade, he was fantastic in Sling Blade. Um, this movie, I think he's phenomenal in this movie. Um, and then, you know, then with like all the other ones with, you know, Pushing Tin, um, Armageddon, you know, those different ones, like I think he's fine in those movies, but I think where he can really add some depth to a character is when he is really allowed to shine. I, I agree with all that. I mean, his, his 96 to 2001 is pretty unmatched. It's amazing. Cause I'm trying, what else? So, I mean, like um, he had monsters ball, which was really good. What else did he have in there? That was I mean, like, he was in just so much that it was just, it was constant where he was like, it seemed like he was in another movie and another movie and another movie. Well, I mean, I'll defend this movie. I, I don't know if we talked about this before, but I think Intolerable cruelty is really good. I do enjoy that one. Yeah. And so he's good in that, but yeah, like monsters ball, the gift pushing 10 Armageddon. Uh, he's actually in the uh, princess Mononoke in the English. He's an English mm-hmm. dub there. I mean, Sling Blade was, I mean, I remember seeing that as being a kid of the 90s, and it was like, this is the most amazing thing I've ever seen. This performance is crazy. Yep. Um, well, yeah, and, and Billy. That tombstone. He's in goddamn yeah. tombstone. We talk, oh, yeah, that's great. Yeah, we talked about Tom Cruise, you know, and in, in some of his uh, off-screen antics. Billy Bob Thornton had his share, too, especially with Angelina Jolie, et cetera. So I Anytime think it, he played with his band and someone tried to talk to him about his acting, he did not like that at all. Yeah, I mean, he he probably was a little bit difficult outside of uh, working on a set, et cetera. But you can't deny. I mean, again, it's like the, it's the Tom Cruise thing, right? You can't deny what they were doing um, in front of the camera. And for Billy Bob, too, from a screenplay perspective, I mean, folks, if if you haven't heard us, you know, just uh, go crazy about one false move. Go listen to that episode and go watch that film. Yeah. Which is like I I knew that he was a screenwriter, but I didn't realize he was that good of a screenwriter. And, and it's like, and so that adds a sort of another depth to yeah. him that is really kind of surprising and really sort of welcome to see that. And so that's something that I really, um, you know, like I said, like his comedic stuff, I'm uh, you know about, but when it gets to his dramatic and his his roles that he's able to add character and the screenplays that he's able to sort of look at, you know, the, the, um, you know, class warfare and different pieces like that. I think he's so good at that. Yeah. Agree. A uh, couple of the names I want to mention. Um, we've already said her name, Bridget Fonda. So she plays Bill Paxton's wife, Sarah in the film. And, and you talked about this, Brad. So leading up to this film, she was working with Quentin Tarantino and Jackie Brown in 97. Well, go, Go back two more years. What do you want to talk about? Two two more years. I've only got she's, 97. She's only she's in one of the greatest romantic comedies of all time. 
What's that, Brad? Singles. Oh, that's yes. We got singles. Um, <laughs> I was I was trying to concentrate on what was going on around ninety seven, ninety eight. We that, don't no, get no, to talk about Bridge of very much, and I don't get to bring up singles enough. So I just wanted to say the word singles. We can talk about Point and No Return as well, the uh, sort of American remake of La Femme Nikita. Yeah, um, some people might, might might point to like single white female, but I I point to singles. So you know, <laughs> that's that's fair. That's fair. But um, Jackie Brown breakup in ninety eight, Finding Graceland in ninety eight, does a simple plan. Uh, Lake Placid. Um, Lake Placid in 99. Lake Placid's such a fun movie. I love that movie. She's amazing in it. And and you're right. I mean, Snow Queen, which was this TV miniseries in 2002, is pretty much the last time she's in front of the camera because she did end up marrying Danny Elfman and decided to kind of step away from Hollywood and just concentrate on her family. Um, Now, obviously, Brad singles and... I'm assuming you're a fan of Bridget Fonda. Oh, absolutely. I mean, she's in singles and Jackie Brown. So okay. win-win for me. Okay. And Lake Placid. I think Lake Placid is great. Kiss of the Dragon. I love Kiss of the Dragon. Yeah. yeah. I mean, yeah. she's she she has a good run there too. Um, oh, yeah, she does. What about you, Patrick? Which is crazy that she was then just like, and I'm done. You know, like, and just like she had such a great run. And then she was like, yeah, I'm out. And then like that's. She was so good in those movies, and I forgot about Kiss of the Dragon. That's a very fun Jet Li movie. Oh, it's amazing, and and I I respect that man. I mean, if if somebody kind of goes, hey, look, family first, and she's going to walk mm-hmm. away from that, and yep. I I know a lot of uh, reporters and stuff have approached her, and the question comes up like, is there a director or something that would get you out of retirement? She's like, absolutely not. I mean, she seems to be enjoying life right now, so you know why why would she return to it? I mean, she's married to Danny Elfman. Good for her. Yeah, that's absolutely. a win right there too. Yep. A uh, couple other names. We've got Brent Briscoe as Lou, Jacob's best friend. We'll talk about him and his performance. Chelsea Ross as Carl. So he's the sheriff in the film. And last name I want to throw out there. Uh, he's only he's only in it a little bit, but Gary Cole as Baxter, the FBI agent, or maybe an FBI agent. So, real quick, production and development. Troy, if you're not first. Your last. That's right. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You, I agree with you 100%. Um, real quick on production and development. So one of the things that we've talked about over 180 episodes now are these little trends that you see uh, when films are being made, et cetera. And so as an example, um, one thing we pointed out in the past is when you get five or six screenwriters or story by credits, et cetera, it, it might be a sign you, you got a turkey on your hands and it's not going to do very well at the box office. I think another thing we've seen in the past too is when you see directors and stars get attached to something drop out and the property starts changing hands over and over again. Yep. So that's what you're going to hear about real quick is after Scott B. Smith had published a short story for The New Yorker, the magazine's fiction editor learned of his then unpublished novel, A Simple Plan, before reading it and forwarding it to an agent. Shortly thereafter, Smith learned that Mike Nichols was interested in purchasing the film rights. Nichols spent a weekend reading the book before contacting Smith's agent and finalizing a deal the following Monday morning. Nichols purchased the rights for his production company, Icarus Productions, for $250,000, with an additional $750,000 to come later from a studio interested in pursuing the project. Smith's manuscript, A Simple Plan, was optioned for development at an independent film studio, Savoy Pictures. So remember remember that studio. Nichols later stepped down from the project due to scheduling conflicts with a planned filmed adaption of All the Pretty Horses. 
So here's where it gets interesting. After Nichols left, Ben Stiller, yeah, that guy, joins the project, project and he's going to direct it. But he ends up leaving over budget disputes with the studio. John Dahl was then announced as director with Nicolas Cage set to appear in the starring role. Um, Do you imagine if this was a Nicolas Cage movie? Yeah. <laughs> but here's here's what happens. Um, Savoy, so this is the production company, they had a string of box office failures. So they pretty much said, we're done with the film industry and exited even before this thing went into production. So then the project is purchased by Paramount Pictures where producer Scott Rudin hired John Borman to direct the film. And it was John Borman who cast Bill Paxton and Billy Bob Thornton. Borman, I think they had a really good relationship after Tombstone. Um, and so they liked working together from yeah, what I understand. Absolutely. So Borman runs into scheduling conflicts and he leaves the film. Paramount then hired Sam Raimi, who saw the film as an opportunity to direct a character-driven story that differed from his earlier works which were highly stylized or dependent on intricate camera movements. Producers were going to cast Anne Heche as Hank's wife, Sarah Mitchell. However, a change was made and Bridget Fonda had secured the role. And Raimi had just worked with Fonda in Army of Darkness. And oh, that's right. Yep. And so again, Danny Elfman comes on board. Oh, because Bridget Fonda was a huge fan of Evil Dead and Evil Dead 2. Yes. So she's basically said to Sam Raimi, I'll do anything for the next one and he yep. put her okay all right all right yep it's all coming together yep. so real quick i i totally forgot about this um the reason why we talked about the schedule of it being sort of limited release in 98 with a wide release in 99 is it's trying to get that oscar push right mm -hmm. so it gets two academy award nominations one for billy bob thornton he gets nominated for best supporting actor Secondly, the movie gets an Academy Award nomination for best screenplay based on material previously produced or published. So this did okay with the critics and it also Don't they just call that best adaptation now? Yeah, I think it's just best adaptation. I'm I'm going uh, off of what it was listed. Yeah. So So here's the thing. Yeah. And, and no and no offense, but we're going to go back and look at 1999 Academy Award winners. Okay. Best supporting in a leading in a Best actor in, in a in a leading role. Best supporting actor. Yeah. Uh, we have Robert Duvall in A Civil Action, Ed Harris in The Truman Show, Jeffrey Rush in Shakespeare in Love, Billy Bob Thornton in A Simple Plan. Here's the winner. James Coburn, Affliction. Oh. <laughs> I would take, honestly, all of the other ones before him. Yeah. Yeah. That's a that bad one. That does not age well. Does not age well. Do you no. think that do you think that's one of those awards where it's like, hey, it's James Coburn. He's been around. Yeah, a while. I bet it's like yeah. a a uh, like a lifetime achievement award. Hidden and as no a offense, like, but come on. Yeah. Uh and then winner is for basically best adaptation is um Gods and Monsters. Oh, okay. So yeah. that's the uh about the director of Frankenstein, right? Correct. Yep. Oh. And then you have nominees as Out of Sight, Primary Colors, The Simple Plan, and A Thid Rain Line. So. Wow. Okay. Yeah. That's solid picks, man. Solid. Yeah. I, I feel the, the supporting actor one is a big miss. It is. Miss. But I, I do miss, um, you know, again, we're talking about a time period. I mean, Patrick, you brought it up. The 90s is the rise of the independent films. But I also think like the Academy Awards 
if something gets nominated, here's a time period where people would go out and see that film or now it gets a big push from Reynolds or something of that nature. Like, I don't, I don't think Academy Awards do that to films nowadays. Um, I, I could be totally wrong. Somebody could come with some data and go, the fact something gets nominated, it makes X amount in return. But I know that was true for, you know, especially in this time period in the 90s. I remember watching, you know, Siskel and Ebert every week. And like, you know, especially when they were doing their Academy Award shows, like, oh, I need to go see this or yeah. I need to, you know, put this on the list and all those different things. Like that was absolutely something that was a part of my weekly routine. Like I need to go see these movies because Siskel and Ebert said this. Yeah. And now everybody's got a podcast talking about yeah. films and everybody's chasing Siskel and Ebert. So yeah, all these weird people out there, weird people. Well, <laughs> let's, uh, let's take a break and uh, we'll join that club of weird people and uh, share our thoughts about 1998's a simple plan. So stay tuned. The crowds are thinning out at the snack bar, folks, and there are still three minutes till showtime. You can easily make it for something that'll just hit the spot. How about it? Don't waste a second of refreshment time. You'll find such an appetizing assortment of refreshments at the snack bar, you won't be able to decide what to ask for first. All of your snack bar favorites are there, including fresh peanuts, hot popcorn, and candy of all kinds. Believe us, you've never eaten better hot dogs, crisper French fries, or more delicious buttered popcorn. Rick Masters is a counterfeiter. He makes his own money. If you can't come up with the front money, you're not for real. Richard Chance is a federal agent. He makes his own laws. I'm going to bang Rick Masters. They're on a collision course. One of them will live. Freeze! U.S. Secret Service! One of them will die. The City of Angels is about to explode. To live and die in L.A. The director of the French Connection is about to take you through the City of Angels in the fast lane to live and die in L.A. Featuring the hot new score from Wang Chung. Rated R, under 17, not admitted without parent. Patrick, you're up first, man. So lay it on us. What would you think about this film? So fun thing, a fun fact about this movie is that it takes place about 25 miles away from where I live. Oh, really? It, yeah. So it's, it, it's very funny to like know Delano, Minnesota and to know the town and everything like that. 
I remember watching this movie when it first came out. I had I had a lot of friends that worked at a movie theater, so they'd always get us to you know free movies and different things like that. And so I remember watching this movie then, you know, as a you know 17, 18 year old kid and not really appreciating it. And then rewatching it now and really appreciating that again, like it was such a character driven movie that it really kept my attention and like held onto that attention so much more because of the character that Billy Bob Thornton played because of the character that Bridget Fonda, who I thought was fantastic in this movie. Um, like, like those characters and Lou, I thought was really, really good in this movie. I thought he was sort of like it, the, the scenes that he was in, he was just fantastic and really held on to your attention. Um, so I I like this movie and I love the characters and the character development with this movie and just sort of the the how it's showed like sort of that bleakness of when you're first starting out and you're having kids and you're trying to figure out what are you going to do with your life and all those different pieces and like how are you ever going to get through this and like it's showing that and it's showing that it's such a fun like just interesting way that you really are rooting for people, but then you're also rooting for them to get caught too. Like I, <laughs> I, I like this movie from the standpoint that the characters, the, the, the story, all of those different pieces are driven so well within this movie. So are, I, I, I love that commentary. Do these characters, since you are live so close to that area, um, <laughs> are, are these characters you, that are so realistic to you that you'd think you would run into them if you just were to drive 20 some miles. Absolutely. Like, <laughs> I will say like, I, um, I, I work with a large egg industry here within the twin cities. And I know that I've been to a lot of those mills that are like that same exact place. And so like, I know those different people that work there and like the, 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 sort of the realities of that like class warfare that's going on and trying to get that better life and trying to do those different pieces. And I, I think about like what Bridget Fonda, when she was, um, you know, dialoguing about what about her life and what is she going to be getting? What can she look forward to? That's a lot of those different things that we've sort of all been at. And that was what really um, like spoke to me and really was able to like, just really, talk to me about what this movie was really about and that character development. Yeah. And and you said as part of one of your favorite thing about film noir is just kind of watching these people make these bad decisions and how they unfold, et cetera. I, I'm curious as somebody who comes across this film and as usual, we're going to spoil this. So I, I, I would strongly encourage you to go watch this film because I, I don't think you can critically do it justice without talking certain plot details and where it goes. But the characters, I agree with you hundred percent feel incredibly authentic. Do the scenarios and the decisions they make feel authentic? I, I, I think so. And then, and that was one of the things about this movie that I thought was really um, kind of, was really interesting where, you know, especially like Bill Paxton's character, right. When they, you know, find the money, they're like, we are not telling anybody, we are not doing this. We're not saying this to anybody. They drop Lou off and they're like, and he's like, man, I know Lou's going to tell his wife. We're not telling anybody. Immediately when he gets home, he's plopping that, you know, $4 million <laughs> yeah. down on the table. He's like, hey, look what I found. Or uh, Bridget Fonda's character is just, you know, talking about how she would return the money and like, it's not a good thing. Like, we need to do this. 
But then that next scene, she's like, hey, what if we just returned 500,000 and then kept the rest, which I think is just such an authentic um, view of like what an actual person would do is trying to justify it in our own minds. Like this is the right thing to do when we know it's the wrong thing. But we would try to justify that in our in our lives by saying these different pieces. So I feel like it's an extremely authentic movie because I, I like I, I, you could see yourself in that situation and trying to justify those same things. Uh, maybe not killing the old farmer on the snowmobile, <laughs> but you know, like you, you really can try yeah. to see yourself justifying like keeping the money and doing all those different pieces. Like that's something that we would probably try to do ourselves. So you empathize with them. I- I'm assuming you like some of these characters too, right? I do like the, some of these characters, and you know, I I really. Um, like you can feel for some of these characters. You can really hopefully root for some of these characters. I think like, you, you know, you're really, and you see Billy Bob, like, you know, taking that, like he's going down a mountain and he's good. Like he's really spiraling and you're hoping that he's able to come out of it, but you're able to see that, you know, what's going to happen is going to happen, but you're really rooting for them and trying and hoping that they can just make better decisions or just not do this decision. No, that, that, yeah, that's a great sort of capsule review of it. I, I think, I think you hit on a lot of the points that, um, I, I, I love this film. I mean, I'm, I'm just gonna say that, uh, I think it's, I think it's probably one of Sam Raimi's most underrated films. Um, Brad, I'm, I'm curious where you land on it. I'll, I'll go into detail on some of my favorite parts of it. Cause I, I think there's a lot to dissect here and pull apart, but where 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 is your initial reaction, Brad? I I love this movie. I this is the best movie we've done this month, and this might not even be close. Um, really? <laughs> oh yeah, like okay. this is this might be one of the most perfect film noir ever made. Um, the the characters are tragic. The things they do, you repeatedly say, "Don't do that. Don't do that. Please <laughs> yeah. don't do that. Don't do mm-hmm. that." And they do it. And you're disappointed in them. Um, and they don't know what they're doing, which I think is key to this movie. Like they have no idea what they're doing, uh, but they they think they do, or Bill Pack or Hank thinks that you know he could figure it out because I, I think one of the smart things they do is they make Hank kind of likable at the beginning, but then as they peel it back you find out that people think that Hank's kind of stuck up because he's this college boy and he did all this stuff. And there's this, his, he thinks he's like better than everyone else. And it kind of slowly sort of, of like comes out, uh, especially when they're doing the scene with him and um, Lou at his house, trying to get him drunk to admit things. Um, And Jacob turns it on him and is like, Hey, we're going to, I'm going to like, kind of chew you out here and tell you what I think so we can get this recording. But you know, there's like really, he's just taking a chance to really dig into his brother. Um, Cause he says some things to, to Lou about how, Hey, you and I are, you're, you're more of a brother than he is and all this stuff. Like there's some truth to that. Um, is so that that's one of the things I wanted to pull apart is uh, I, I, I think on the surface, there's that superiority complex that yeah. Hank has to his surroundings Yes. But as the movie goes on, one character who you don't think is very smart ends up being probably the most observant character in the entire film. Oh, yeah. I mean, Jacob, like the Billy Bob, the Jacob character, I think is 
one of my favorite characters to ever be in a movie. Yeah. And, and he has. About it. Oh, sorry. They, yeah. they talk about it throughout the whole movie where they like, hey, you're kind of observant. Like he's like Hank says those different things a couple of times. And then Jacob's like, yeah, you know, I'm always kind of watching. And then, yeah, you see it with yeah. the scene at Lou's house. Yeah. And that scene, like he totally outsmarts Hank, like because Hank's like, OK, let's get out of here. This isn't going to work. And Jacob totally spins it and makes it work because he is observant and knows how to do it and knows how to like talk to these people because he doesn't think he's better than everybody else and he can figure it out. Well, but 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 that's my question. So you you look at that relationship and then you look at the relationship of Bridget Fonda's character, Sarah and Hank. And I guess my question is this, is it that Hank has a superiority complex or Hank is easily manipulated and the person that's pulling his strings is Sarah. Well, that's also the other thing. Sarah is one of the most complex women you see in a film because usually we think as the woman character is like the voice of reason, right? She, well, she is, at, she is the voice the of reason at the beginning. But as soon as she gets that smell, of that money and that lifestyle that could be, she's like, no, you got to do this, this, and this. Um, I mean, she even has that scene where she talks about how, shitty their life would be if they don't take this money. Right. And I mean, the tragic part is like, that's how this film ends up. Like they don't have the money and they show her as a librarian and she looks miserable, but yeah. Did not have a smile on her face at the library. No, like <laughs> usually like that, that's a, like a really, I think important part of this movie is like the woman here is kind of the one kind of pulling the strings a bit. And Hank can't yeah. have a superiority complex. Cause he like feels like he's smarter than everyone else and still get played and not really know it. Cause I think that's what's going on in this movie. That's fair. Yeah. I, there, there's so much history I mean, between J Jacob and, and Sarah are both playing him at points in this movie. Yes. Uh, and, and that's the thing is that at what point does your superiority complex at the end of the day, it's just like, okay, you, you lack street smarts. Like yeah. you, you just don't have street and I see all these scenes where they talk about, well, Hank went to college or Hank did this. And that revelation where Jacob comes back and says, Hey, the, the reason why um, our father isn't here is he committed suicide. Killed himself. Yeah. And it's totally oblivious to Hank. So I, it's a really powerful scene, but it's, it, it adds this complexity to Bill Paxton. And, and I will say, I might disagree with you on this, Patrick. I think Bill Paxton's amazing in this. Um, he's, I think so too, but I just think he's, he's, I think Bridget Fonda and Billy Bob Thornton are so good in this movie I, that it's like, don't yeah, disagree with that. They're on a whole he's, other level. He's overshadowed yeah. by those two, but yeah. I think, I think he plays it perfectly for that character. And there's some, some revelatory scenes for Hank where it's a gut punch and you feel it and you're feeling what, Billy or you you're feeling what Billy Bob Thornton and what Sarah are doing to him. Like yeah. you, you, you would have that same reaction. But, but Patrick was talking about like the biblical stuff in this as soon. And, and this is going to be very heavy, but as soon as Sarah gets a bite of that apple, it is over. It is <laughs> absolutely. Guys wouldn't mind this movie. <laughs> yeah. It might yeah. be, a, it might be a negative one, Brad. Yeah. So, but <laughs> I will, I will say, I will say this film has one of the greatest, monologues of any film I have ever seen. Which one? Is, there's so many. There's a couple of good ones. It is the one where he is talking about how he had a girlfriend for a month, but she was oh, paid. Yeah. 
that was totally improv. That actually happened to Billy Bob Thornton. So he just brought it up in the middle of that scene and they were just rolling and they kept it. But that is one of the greatest monologues in a movie I've ever seen in my entire like it is so good that I don't I think I think you could watch I think you could simply watch it for that reason and be totally sad. Like it is the fact that he did not win best supporting on that scene alone is mind boggling. It is unbelievable. It was heartbreaking. Like that scene was just like he like all he wants is a family and the farm and just this this simple life. Like that's all he wants. And he just can't get it. And the only way he can get a girlfriend is to have her friends pay the girl to date him. Like it's but even at the even at the end of that, like this is how how a good of a person Jacob is. At the end of that, he said, Yeah, but she used to just smile at me in the hallway. So that was kind of cool. You're like, dude, you're such like I don't know. He just like kind of goes along with stuff and he's like, yeah, it was fine. Like, yeah, they were paid. But at the end of the day, she smiled at me. Yeah. yeah. I, I will say the other monologue that I I'll, I'll give it to you. Like that, that's the best one in there, but man, in a really close second place is the one Patrick just talked about with Bridget Fonda talking about a mediocre life wearing secondhand clothes. What's going to happen to their kid. I, it, what I love about that monologue and I, I think you said it just beautifully, Patrick. Like, this is one of those films where you're watching pretty decent people, maybe, you know, gray area people, just making dumb choices. And they, they think they're going to outsmart fate or the system, and it's not working. And at some point with these films, you kind of got to go, well, where, where's the re- what's the motivation? Where's the re- realism for, you know, continuing on with this charade? When Sarah gives that monologue about that life, all of a sudden I feel for her because I, like you said, I remember starting out with a family, living in an apartment, not having much. And, um, I, I I love these lines, um, because there's references in the beginning about you work for the American dream. You don't steal it. And there's that line kind of comes at the beginning of the film, but it has more. Tell that to every CEO. Am I right? Troy? (laughs) (laughs) But that, that line now has more, impact when you hear Sarah's monologue about why she wants to steal the American dream um, because the work is too hard and it's unfair. Um, so I, I love that monologue as much as I love the Billy Bob Thornton one, because it's a, it, it's a great way to get into the character. And all of a sudden, every one of these dumb choices now becomes like, uh, okay, I totally believe it. I totally, it's, it's out of desperation and survival. So I'm going to ask, I'm going to add a third monologue into this discussion <laughs> where when they're sitting around at Lou's house and they're drinking and Billy Bob, not just Billy Bob and, and Jacob is, is doing the monologue about how Hank sucks as a person, but Lou's reaction and Lou's like when they're like, Hey Lou, how would you, oh, how, you know, yeah. why don't you play Hank doing this? And he, comes around the corner like a little puppy dog like but that's exactly what bill paxton would have looked like and that whole monologue there and that whole scene there was just crazy that it happened and then you're just not expecting that but then when you like you look back you're like oh man maybe i should have been expecting that to happen because everything sarah says turns around and blows up in their face and so like like that is such a good scene and such a good monologue from um, Jacob and Lou in that situation. 
We could throw a fourth one in there. And when they're on the okay. farm and he's talking about um, what he wants to do with farming. Why? I mean, my my goodness. Anytime Billy Bob Thornton opens his mouth in this film, it's like, where's the Academy Award? Just. I, I mean, how many 10 out of 10 like scenes are in this movie? Like there's a lot of more than 10. Absolutely perfect. <laughs> I agree. I agree. Um, I, I don't know. If, that, man, that's a tough call. Maybe we'll talk about that uh, at the end. Like, what is our favorite? So you're clearly putting all your eggs in in this one. Um, I want to talk about Sam Raimi for a minute. So uh, universally, and we can come back and and just pour all the praise on to the acting in here. But I want to talk about the directing for a second. What did you guys think about um, Sam Raimi as a director of a character driven neo noir film? I thought he was absolutely perfect. So. When, when we talk about like Evil Dead and Army of Darkness and all that stuff, like the evil parts, like the camera is m- kinetic. It is oh, it moving is, around yeah. everywhere. Here, it's very, he uses movement in the camera a little bit, especially with the crow, like crows or ravens? Crows? Ravens. Crows. Yeah. Crows. Okay. Because there's uh, a group of crows is a murder. Murder. Oh, yes. Yes. Yeah. Oh. Yeah. God damn it. Yes. Uh, so, yeah. So there's a, you know, all the crows. So it moves there and stuff. And there's some other Sam Raimi tricks. I think there's a top down shot when the guy goes over the, the edge onto the lake or, or whatever, whatever. But for the most part, it's really um, sort of not using all of Sam Raimi's tricks, but it's really spectacular. Like, it, I think it's like him showing that he can direct without being like kinetic all the time. And I don't think this film would benefit from a camera that's moving around all the time. And and I, I think letting the camera sit on these characters and letting their emotion show really helps. Um, like just think of the truck, like it, it's just like, it's in there and it's very intimate and it just feels like you're there in that. And when he's talking about it, you can feel how like Hank starts to feel like he doesn't know his own brother. Like you want to feel that. And I think the the camera and the direction really helps you feel their tension as brothers in this film. Okay. Where do you stand on it, Patrick? I think Sam Raimi does such a good job of capturing. So, like you might initially look at the landscape, you might initially look as at the background as bleak and sort of desolate, but I also believe that he does a really good job of really capturing sort of the beauty that's going with it. And I think that's sort of a part of the theme of the movie where it's initially looking bleak, but then there is, you know, stuff underneath that you should be celebrating and looking at and really seeing the beauty for. And so I think Sam Raimi, and, and again, I agree with everything that Brad said about, you know, his typical, you know, kinetic camera style would just not work in this where he can set on a character and he can be in a scene without consistent movement and like letting the the dialogue lead the movie rather than you lead the movie through your, your camera work. So I think he does a really um, good job with capturing like how desolate it is while also seeing the beauty of like the landscape and the world around the people that are just not appreciating it. Yeah. I, I think it's really interesting and I'm, I'm sure this is a combination of Sam Raimi's 
direction, working with the actors and the cinematographer. But so take that truck scene and you get some very intimate close shots. And to, to Brad's point, you feel like you're in there. And it's juxt- juxtaposed to these very um, environmentally bleak shots that show the isolation of the characters. So there, there's two scenes that kind of just stick out to me because it has some foreshadowing. But at the same time, it's it's a great contrast to these very personal scenes where you've got two people sort of in closed spaces talking to each other. We, we talked about one as they're walking through the woods and you've got the crows above them. There's some, there's some great shots and it, and it's some great foreshadowing, mm-hmm. but again, it's, it's kind of like stranger in a strange land and you're in this desolate white. I mean, we're dealing with another movie that takes place in the snow. Right. Um, and, and watching them kind of go through that, you feel like, okay, you got two brothers and then the brother's best friend. But when you look at that shot from an outside, everybody just looks alone. And, and, you know, there, there's no connection there. And well, then I kind of come back to that too. When the fort, when they do it with, and the that's fort. the other scene okay. is that when they go back into the forest and all of a sudden you see them, uh, starting to fan out as they're going in and you get this shot of four people walking into the woods, leaving this trail. And again, I, I think it's perfectly placed in contrast to some of the scenes that came before it, where you get some very intimate moments. And I think he does a great job of having a very reserved um, camera movement and he is letting the film breathe, but he's also very careful in the shots that he's making to highlight even what the characters are going through or, you know, where we are within the tension in the plot. And the final scene of this film, I think is kind of gut wrenching. Like, (laughs) They, you've got Bill Paxton's character, Hank, who goes through all of this stuff and he ends up losing so much and he doesn't even just, you know, end up where he started at the end of the film. He's, he's kind of in the negative from where he started. Right. And the final shot is this busted out house with this window with no glass and you don't see into the house because it's just pure blackness and then it just slowly fades away. And so you're looking at that and you go, well, there's, there's Bill Paxton's character in a single frame. And so his character arc, where he started and where he's at right now, he is this broken house with this void inside of him because now Jacob isn't around. And I'm like, okay, Sam Raimi, that, that's some pretty amazing stuff to kind of visually tell your story about your characters. Um, and, and, do, and, you know, it's one of those films where it accentuates everything that's going on. And either adds to the attention, adds to the character development, or just adds to the character storytelling in general. Yeah. And I think with him just allowing the camera to to be and just to sit and, you know, Troy, you mentioned that last scene where it's just their old house, their old farmhouse yeah. that's all busted out and all just terrible. And then it's just done. Like, it's it's just so different for what you would expect out of a Sam Raimi movie that it's fun to see sort of that maturing and that's like hey i can try something different and do really well with it like 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 it's just such a a, letting it breathe letting it be a character movie rather than this kinetic movie where you're moving all over the place is this such a different movie for him yeah now this is this is not a film where it's just people talking right i i think it's very wise to take a horror director 
and give him this script because when certain moments happen, they have a kinetic energy to it. It is very shocking. And mm-hmm. and I got to tell you, there, there are so many shocking moments in this film that give you a gut punch. Um, and I think Raimi times it perfectly, but then throw in the acting that's going on and every one of these scenes is so impactful, not just because it opens up a new twist in the story, but because Raimi does something really smart, I think, too, and lets you see the aftermath of each action, and it lingers on the character's reaction for a little bit. Um, oh, you feel the consequences of all these decisions, and I think that's an important aspect of this, is letting those bad decisions not only happen, but let the characters know that the consequences are happening as well. Yeah. I didn't, I didn't know if you guys had a a moment um, where you're, you, you, there's so many to choose from. It's kind of like the monologues, right? You could go, well, what's your favorite monologue? You could also (laughs) say, well, what's your favorite, like, holy shit, what just happened moment? Um, Because it doesn't represent, like I said, just a twist, but it's really shocking for me. It's Jacob commits a murder. Nope. Guy's not dead. Hank actually kills the guy, and while Hank's doing it, he's looking away while he's smothering him. That scene is shocking, and it's so uncomfortable, uh, and and you almost feel like you're you're watching something you really shouldn't be watching. It has that horror element, but you it lingers with you for a while after it's over. To me, that's that's the one that still gets to me. The one that gets me constantly is the um, when Hank and Lou and Jacob. And then Lou's wife um, in the kitchen where she, you know, starts shooting at Hank. Oh, yeah. Hits her with the shotgun. I was like, oh, like that just came out of nowhere where like that happened. It was like, oh, my God, like that just happened. And that that like that one really shocked me and made me like audibly say, like, whoa, wait a minute. What just happened? (laughs) And so that was the one for me that really got me. Yeah. And and the camera stays there for a little bit because you're watching Bill um, Paxton kind of react to, oh, my God, what did I just do kind of thing? And then he like he backs up and then he starts shooting throughout the whole house like, oh, I I need to make this other terrible decision. Like it was a full fight. They were shooting at us. And so like it was just, yeah, you see those different pieces. What about you? I mean, I. I think the obvious answer is at the very end where it's Jacob either going to commit suicide or Hank has to shoot him in the back. Yeah, and It's a met. I mean, obviously it's like, Hank, you've, you've stabbed me in the back multiple times during this movie. Now, why don't you just finish the job and shoot me in the back and kill me? And that, I mean, it's, and then when he's talking about, Hey, tell your daughter that the, the teddy bears from me and the, the wife had kind of complained that, you know, the teddy bear was dirty and all this stuff. And it's kind of, again, playing on that seniority, a uh, superiority, seniority, superiority <laughs> complex that they kind of both have. Um, yeah. When they talking about the bear and stuff and dude, it's just that it's heart. Again, it, again, it's a perfect scene. Like that part is just perfect. It, you can't do it any better. You can't do it any better. I, I agree. I, yeah. I mean, lose death, uh, his wife's death. I love that. Um, the, the, the other scene that kind of gets to me is when I uh, come on, Lou's wife is a bad shot. I mean, he, he was like 15 feet away from it. Yeah, that's true. She, she was a little upset. Um, the, the other scene that is a little shocking is, uh, and, it, and it's super tense. So Hank is in the plane and Gary, um, Coleman, you find out, okay, he's, he's actually not an FBI agent. 
So pause on that for just a second. Yeah. When I, I had, <clears throat> this was like a, a few viewings ago, Yeah. but I had kind of misremembered, but I was like, wait a minute. Did the wife lie about him actually be not being an FBI agent, but he was an FBI agent. And like, even when I was watching this time, I was like, that wouldn't have even surprised me if she would have said, Oh, he's not an FBI agent. Turns out he actually was like, that would have known where the money was. Yeah. Yeah. Not would have like, that would have not like that would even played. Yeah. Well that see. Okay. Let me, let me say this. This is why this movie's so good is because and let's say you really wanted to shock the audience or, or throw another twist in. Yeah. You could do that. Like the wife's playing everybody, Yep. but I don't think that would be an authentic choice by that character because she does love Bill Paxton. She loves him. She just wants a better life for both of them. Yeah. So I, I could see where somebody would go, well, let's just throw another twist in there, but I'm glad they, they use some restraint. Yeah. There was some restraint there, but again, it's kind of, she got a bite of that apple and, and what oh, she yeah, gonna, yeah. yeah. But, I, but I love that scene of he, do, he, he just grabs a bunch of bullets. He's trying to figure out which bullet goes in there. They cut away. You don't know if the gun's loaded or not. And then when, um, you know, he gets the drop on, on, uh, this Baxter character, and he, he he's like, well, how are you going to explain this? He's like, oh, that's for me to figure out. And then just kills the man in cold blood, shoots him through the forehead. You're like, oh, my God, how do you clean? To your point, Patrick, like, that's another dumb decision. How are you going to clean this up? <laughs> and he's, he just starts going playing. Again, mode, right? this movie is a don't do that movie. It's a don't do that movie. And they do it every <laughs> single time. <laughs> well, and then he tries justifying it. And he's trying to figure out like he's walking around like, OK, if I did this. And he came out this way, and that's why I shot. Like all, it's just the shocking the amount of justification that he tried to put in to all of these bad decisions. Okay, well, so I mean, he shot the sheriff. Like, could he have just said like he shot the sheriff and I shot him back? It, it wouldn't have been. I mean, not that I've ever been in this situation, but yeah, that would probably be what. You know, I guess at this been. point in time, it's like the two brothers have been around a lot of people who have died, and like they're the only people coming out of it. So maybe something is. Yeah, going there's on. there's one common. I mean, analytics will tell you. <laughs> there's one common denominator here. Yes, that the common denominator is the Mitchell brothers. All right, so I got. I ask this question: you you you're out in the snow. You're you're vacationing out in Patrick's area, 25 miles away. Um, you you run across. Four hundred or four million four hundred thousand uh, dollars. Do you keep it or do you turn it in? What What do you do? I think we've all talked, like, thought about this scenario in our heads, right? Like, we've okay. always been like, if I come across a bunch of money, what am I gonna do? Yeah, I want to think I'm gonna do the right thing, but I'm like, if I got four point four million dollars right now, I could probably retire and be very happy. Okay. All right. like I know how much is on my mortgage. I know how much college is going to be. I know how much I roughly need to live. I think I could get, I think I could be done. Okay. All right. What, so I'm probably keeping it. You're keeping it. I, boy. I but then, it, then it's like, do am I going to like be watching over my shoulder every day? Cause the mob is coming after me. If that's the case, maybe I, maybe I don't. Well, you know, and we haven't even mentioned the sort of the final. But I know how to launder money so I could get it clean. <laughs> <laughs> it's good to know. Hey, folks, um, yeah, <laughs> not a bomb at gmail.com and Brad will <laughs> launder your money for you. Well, but like we didn't even mention, like, you know, the whole fact that the money was actually tracked. Like they had the serial numbers. All 10% of it. 10%. 10% of it. But it's still like you don't know what 10% of yeah. it is. 
And so like, you know, out of that, like you burn 10% of it, but who knows if that's the right 10%. But you can still and, launder it. There are people out there who. Like Brad, like, like Brad. You know how to do this. Like, yeah. yeah. But you, know, you, you think about it and like, would I keep the money or like Brad said, would I consistently be looking over my shoulder and would I be able to enjoy it? Like, I would hope that I would make that right decision and say no, but until you're in that situation, you just have no idea how you would react. Uh, I mean, 4.4 is like, you know, that's like making $10 million for the rest of your life. Cause it's, you know, it's, it's cash. It's tax free. So yeah, I, I, I guess maybe it's the Catholic up upbringing or something. I would be so freaking paranoid. Oh, you got that guilt in you. I'd have, yeah, I'm motivated by guilt a lot of times. So I know me and I would sit there and I'd be like, wow, you know, 4 million call Brad, he'll launder it. Um, but at, at the same time, obviously. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we're, we're, I'm sure we're all the same. Like, uh, you know, you play the lottery. I, I tell my wife this all the time. She's like, well, I'm not playing the lottery unless it's 20 billion. I'm like, are you serious? Give me, give me $1 billion. I can do a lot with 1 billion. Um, but you, you end up kind of going, well, who am I going to share that with? So it's family, friends, et cetera. When you get a scenario where you, you find 4 million and it's not from the lottery, my paranoia would just be out of control. I, well, I mean, and also you can't just walk into a bank and deposit $4.4 million without someone saying, excuse me, sir. Well, in this day and money? age, I mean, anytime you throw cash out, everybody looks at you like crazy. Yeah. Um, I, I couldn't do it, but I don't, I'm not, it's not because I'm like a great person. I'm just paranoid as fuck. So <laughs> that's, um, yeah, that's my motivation. Well, I mean, what else do you guys have uh, to share about this film? I, I I loved watch. I saw it in the theater, loved it. Uh, it's one of those that I I will constantly go back to um, because it it is one of my favorite neo noir. Um, to me, this is a great um, I don't know way to get into film noir is to pick a movie like this and show it to somebody and go. If you really enjoyed this, there are a lot of black and white films. Like you know, um, DOA or Double Indemnity, etc., that have all of the strengths that this film has. Even the voiceover—I mean, this thing has a voiceover in the beginning and the end—but it, it has all the film noir tropes. And I almost think it, it's like a really good gateway drug to get into it. Um, but I, I don't know if you guys have any other thoughts about this one. No, you're not wrong. But like, I have seen this film five or six times. I know. I remember the first time I saw it, probably. Like Patrick was, you know, I was 13, 14 years old and it was like, that's good. Then you watch it again and you're 25 and you're like, oh man, that's really good. And then you watch it again and you're like, fuck, this is a perfect film. And it, is. it just gets better every time you watch it. And yeah, like y- you think about, you know, it's easy to compare this to Fargo because it's like, you know, it's snowing and cold and all that stuff. But this has, you know, is it? I don't know if it's better than Fargo, but like, I don't think Fargo is like that much better than this movie. I, I think they're two different beasts almost. Yeah, they are. But like, I think this is, this is Raimi going serious and the Coen brothers had gone serious a few years before that. And setting is about the, you know, it's just kind of that, that comparison, but yeah, I, man, it, it just is a film that has aged perfectly. And I just love the performances are you don't get better than Billy Bob Thornton in this movie. You don't get better than Bridget Fonda, but Bill Paxton is still amazing 
as well. And it's, they're just all three just like on Mount Rushmore in this movie. It's crazy. Lou is great. Carl is great. Oh yeah. yeah. Lou, Your good. side characters are perfect. Yep. Yep. Like they're just, they're all those side characters that make the movie that much more. And I just, I love in this movie how everyone's just sort of tolerating Hank. Like you don't feel like anybody really likes Hank besides Sarah. And even she is frustrated with things, but I, I completely yeah, he's like, you're telling me there's five, weeks in December he's like well five Mondays and even then he's kind of condescending because he thinks right. he's smarter than everybody else <laughs> like it's a, like all of those different conversations with the side characters um but I I completely agree like I, I think where you're at in your situations in life and watching this movie at you know when I was 17 versus you know 30 versus now when I'm older than 30, you know, like you see those different situations in life and how much more like you see that every man persona that is really a part of this movie that really makes you root for the characters while also yelling at the characters. <laughs> yeah, I, man. Well said. I, I am surprised like this doesn't have, you know, one, I, I was so excited when one false move got the criterion treatment. I'm like, where's this one? This one needs that special edition. It needs to be cleaned up. To me, I think this is also one that just needs to be seen more. I think more people oh, need to talk about this film. It's only on DVD, right? Uh, that's how I watched it. That's the copy yeah. I have, to be quite honest. I found it on streaming. Like, I, you know, I was able to stream it, but that was... Yeah, there's was... an HD stream of it, like on yep. Apple and stuff. And that's why I, I watched that, because it was an HD, so... Well, it, yep. this, is, this is another example of sort of a, a modern classic that... I mean, if this thing were shot in black and white, it would still be gorgeous to look at and, and still be effective. Uh, I, I just, I, I really love this film. And it, it, again, I mean, this is kind of why we did the podcast. It's like, we need to champion some of these films that didn't, didn't really get any love upon initial release, but you know, I'm, I'm thinking about films that we talked about, like big trouble in little China. It's like, my gosh, we're on the 18th, whatever media release of that thing. Um, which I'm not complaining. I buy every one of them, but we're simple plan. I mean, yeah. we, we should have had a much better, I don't know, treatment of this film. So, yeah, I, I think it raises the question of like, why haven't more people seen this movie? Is it, you know, because it's not like a huge names attached to it, you know, and you were, you were mentioning earlier with like, if peak Nicholas Cage would have been in this movie, would that have made it more, popular and more widely seen or because it was bill paxton and billy bob thornton and bridget fonda did that you know take it down a little bit uh, it's, it's a good question I, I i think at some point there is a you know the classics the true classics where everybody goes oh yeah that's a classic there is a convergence of marketing appeal as well as quality content that come together and then all of a sudden it, it just gets elevated in the public right um, at, at the end of the day, I, I don't think people remember Billy Bob Thornton now that could change. I mean, we, we see this all the time. Somebody passes director star or something. There's a retrospective that happens. And all of a sudden they're like, Hey, you remember this film from like 50 years ago? It's a stone cold classic. And now all of a sudden everybody watches it. And it's, it's sort of in the, the vernacular of, of, you know, film critics, et cetera. I hope that's what happens to this one. But at the end of the day, when you look at the star power and even Sam Raimi as a director at that time period, 
um, Sam Raimi wasn't going to bring in the audiences, um, you know, with this type of film. Billy Bob Thornton probably was a critical darling, given all the stuff that he's working on up to that. Bill Paxton wasn't a draw. Um, Bridget Fonda wasn't a lead. So it had all the the it it had all the um, I don't know. It had the recipe for quality content, mm-hmm. but it never had that marketability factor, in my opinion. Yeah, and it comes at a point between the same Raimi big stuff, right? Yeah. It comes after Army of Darkness, but and then before uh, Spider Man. In between there is like these films that don't you wouldn't typically like associate with Raimi, but they do have some Raimi ness to them. Um, maybe Love of the Game might be the outlier there, but um, yeah, so it, it's like not even in like the right place in his filmography. Maybe if you put this in between Spider-Man and Spider-Man two, this movie's huge, but yeah. then it's not these characters or, you know, Billy Bob Thornton's not going to be in it. Cause it's going to be someone much bigger, um, you know, cause it's going to have a $50 million budget instead of a $17 million budget. So yeah, I, it, it's, it's disappointing that it doesn't have a bigger audience because I think it's like one of the best, film noir films and it's a quintessential early nineties film as well. Like it again, it's hitting on all the things that I love, but it's just disappointing that we don't even have a Blu-ray release of it. Like, give me that. Yeah. It, hey, look but how right. good would this thing look in 4k? Like, yeah, just, I, just uh, you know, I, I, I was excited when we talked about narrow margin last week and Kino put out that beautiful version of it with, you know, two commentaries and all the stuff to it. Uh, we, we need that for this film. So, you know, come on, Kino, Umbrella, any of those, uh, if, you're, if it's not going to be Criterion. <laughs> well, um, I got to ask the question. I'm going to start with you, Patrick. We just got done having an, an awesome discussion about 98's A Simple Plan. Is it a bomb? I don't believe so. I, I, I believe that it is not a bomb. All right. Well, Brad, what, what about you? <laughs> it's not a bomb. Okay, I agree. So, Patrick, did you watch all the films that we talked about this month? Uh, no. Well, so, um, girls, a dragon tattoo. I remember seeing that in the theater and then I had, wasn't able to watch that one again. And then with, we were all sick with COVID around our house. So we weren't able to watch like the, the, the noir films that I wanted to watch this month, but we got through, you know, a lot of other films that were on our list. No, not yet. Well, you can participate in this. I'm going to ask Brad if, if you had to rank, um, this month's film noir, uh, entries and now keep in mind, we had two last week. So yes, you basically got to rank five films. How, how would that work for you? Okay. So uh, I would say, God, this is hard. I know it's Uh, hard because Hey, look, all the films we talked about this month were amazing. So this is going to be like, no, no disrespect to this film but i'm gonna put the narrow margin at five okay narrow margin at four one false move at three girl mm-hmm. the dragon tattoo at one and simple or two and then simple plan at one. Ooh, okay yeah we're we're gonna we're gonna be different okay okay so i'm probably gonna put a simple plan at one one false move at two the narrow margin at three. Um, this is where it gets tough. 
Um, goodness. Let's see. Narrow margin would be four and girl with the dragon tattoo would be five. Yeah, that's fine. Yeah. They're all, they're all awesome. They're all amazing. You can't go wrong. You want it, you want it. Would you, have you seen all of them, Patrick? Do you have a ranking? I've seen, um, once fall, once false move girl with a dragon tattoo and a simple plan. And I would put sort of simple plan one, once false move two girl with a dragon tattoo three. Um, again, all good movies, all fantastic movies, but I, I just really enjoyed this movie more than, than, than the other two. Yeah. I, so we're all universally saying this is number one, but then it just changes after that. Right. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. Well, Brad, I have some feedback. You want me to, you want me to read that off? Ooh, that'd be lovely. Okay. We got some cool feedback. So this one's from Tom. Hello again, everyone. I was just listening to your episode on Fright Night Part 2 and realized I must be the one person who hasn't responded to your request for their address for the Spooktober Film Suggestion Prize. Please don't read his address. I, I won't. Um, okay. Just as well suspected, I've been running behind on both of your podcasts and email must have gotten uh, filtered. I suggested The Girl with All the Gifts. I'm relieved it was I probably well shouldn't it. send it with like naked pictures in it too. Yeah, don't do that. Um, oh, I'm sorry. And and I think also we're wait, we we got your address, Tom. We we sent you an email. We need to know if, if you uh, if you want a digital prize, or um, if you have an all region player because we, we yeah. have a box we can send you as well. Yes. So you, if you didn't get our email, and you in in a month or so you run across this episode, reach back out to us and tell us if you have an all region player. If you want something digital, we'll get it to you. So uh, his his email goes on. I felt that I should at least try to repay your kindness and recall you talking in a previous episode about discovering Garth Marenghi's Dark Place and asking for suggestions of other UK comedy shows, so here it goes. Some of these shows are quite old, so apologies if you were specifically after more recent material. Side note, um, Garth Marenghi had another book come out on Halloween. He has two books now, and if you get the audio books, you can hear him read those. Um, yeah. They're fantastic. So, okay, here's some recommendations from Tom. First one, Dead Set, written by Charlie Brooker before Black Mirror, a zombie apocalypse attacks the contestants on the TV show Big Brother. Sounds interesting. Um, okay. Peter Kay's Phoenix Nights, an ensemble comedy about a shabby small town entertainment venue. Uh, next one is The Day Today, Chris Morris and Armando Lanucci satire of TV news. Uh, Brass Eye, Chris Morris satire of sensationalist TV news. I'm Alan Partridge. Oh, I've seen this one. I'm Alan Partridge, Steve Coogan's iconic character, a pompous mm -hmm. and oblivious TV presenter on the downslope of fame. He did a movie, too, that's really good. Um, so I'd Ooh. recommend that. Nathan Barley, Charlie Brooker, and Chris Morris series lambasting of self-centered Vice Magazine-style journalism. Uh, the Mighty Boosh, surreal fantasy comedy. The Inbetweeners, Four Schoolboys and Their Adolescent Fumblings. I've seen The Inbetweeners. Okay. Father Ted, a priest endures his placement on a tiny Irish island with a senile senior and moronic junior, at least there's tea. Okay. Uh, the League of, oh, I've seen The League of Gentlemen. Okay. Macabre horror comedy set in a very local village of Royston, Vasey. It's, it's out there. It's funny. Uh, Bottom with Rick Mail and Adrian Edmondson. The young ones are two idiots who both think they're the smart one. I'll have to check that out. Inside number nine, horror comedy from half of the team from League of Gentlemen. Step, toe, and son. Young Harold yearns to escape the life of a rag and bone man 
and living with his grouchy father. And the last one is Dad's Army, set during World War II, an ensemble comedy about a small home guard group. Uh, you what asked, was, do what? Sorry, what was the zombie apocalypse one again? Oh, the zombie apocalypse? Oh, yeah, that's right. You like zombies. Um, it was Dead Set, S-E-T. Perfect. Is that one word or two? Uh, two words, Dead Set. Um, he also says, you asked for ideas to follow on from your Breaking Brad season. Maybe now that you've suitably traumatized him, you could treat the poor guy. Look, we traumatized. There's a lot of collateral damage. Yeah, there. Collateral damage there. Yep. Pick films to watch, which Brad hasn't seen that you think he really should to help him regain his love of film after enduring so much cinematic poison. It could be called reanimating Brad. I like that. Oh, that's actually pretty that's good. That's really good. Um, <laughs> thanks again for the show. Much love. The first Tom H. Man, that's that's a great email. Uh, this one's from Jeremiah. Hey, Troy and Brad, Jeremiah. Again, I emailed previously about underwater. I'm wondering how you all determine whether or not a movie was a bomb when the financial information is hard to come by. Do you um, want to take this one, Troy? Cause I obviously don't follow the rules of road show. So I'll let, I'll let you feel this one. Uh, yeah, let me, let me just finish his email and we'll get into this. Cause this will give us an opportunity to, to lambast you in your math skills. Um, I'm listening to the girl with the dragon tattoo episode, which I know is a fluke and only happened because Brad is bad at alligator math. <laughs> that's, that's funny. Yeah. Um, but there were some movies that I wanted to recommend request during spooky season, but couldn't find the budget right now. I'm looking at the 2016 movie, Christine, which has pretty high rotten tomatoes reviews, but only made about $350,000. I have no idea if that's good or bad though, because there's no budget information on Wikipedia or the numbers.com which I found while doing this research. If you have any rules that you follow when making decisions, when information is sparse, I'd appreciate knowing how you do it. Best Jeremiah. Um, yeah, Brad, I'll sit, I'll sit this one out. <laughs> yeah. So the internet's tricky. Um, and, and Patrick, we've, we've actually worked on a project behind the scenes and had some trouble with this um, because we were trying to do, something uh for a class that was basically how to use data from a predictive standpoint to understand like what is going to be the box office return now in today 2023 that has really come down to a science um and what's really incredible about it is there are companies that they this is what they charge studios for and they will monitor um social media interests and pre awareness ticket stuff, sales yep. and awareness and everything. And, and then they get the budget numbers and they can get it down to, we know they spent this much on production. They estimate this is going to be on advertising, cross promotional, et cetera. It, it's really incredible. The accounting that goes on in today's world. When you get to something that is probably mid eighties and beyond, it gets very tricky. So to use your example, like Christine, if we were searching down a budget, and we saw how much a movie made. And then you kind of turn to articles that are written about that film. And sometimes you'll get lucky and somebody will say, hey, when this was released, it bombed because this is where it sat in relation to other films of that time period. And, and sometimes we get lucky there. If that doesn't work for us, sometimes we find information about um, what was the average cost of a film of that time period or we'll go back and Christine's a good example. We'll go back and look at what, okay, who is John Carpenter working for studio wise? Is that universal? Do we know what the budget was for no, his, 2016? It's a different Christine. 
Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah. 2016 is Christine, but I'll use like John Carpenter's Christine from back in the day. Right. So if we didn't know the budget for that, we may go back and say, well, if John Carpenter was working at universal or whatever, do we know the budget of that film? And could we approximate what an average film might cost at that time period? And then look at the box office return and say, okay, we can guess it. And again, the general rule of thumb is if you take the production uh, of what a movie costs and then the multiplayer is what, Brad, two, two and a half? It's one and a half or two. Yeah, one one and a half or two. Then you can say, okay, if the movie doesn't make more than that, then technically it probably was a bomb on its theatrical release. But that does not count anything that um, they made off of cross-promotion pre-sales on home video streaming, all this other stuff. Yeah, we only look at box office because it, it gets muddy. The streams of revenue after a film has been released on um, in the theater, a lot of that stuff is based on how it performs in the theater, though. So you, if you're a bigger release, that revenue stream is much higher because you can demand more from streaming services, blah, blah, blah. But also, Troy, there's a kind of a caveat that you and I talk about, too. It's like, has anyone heard of this? Film? Like yeah. Christine from 2016, we would probably consider a bomb because I didn't even know that was a movie. You know, yeah. it's like, so we would say, well, it's, it's a bomb because there's bomb of aware- awareness <laughs> sort of deal. There is. Well. I mean, it's, it's more, it's more art than science, right? So our favorites yeah. are trying to take movies that we know financially bombed and critically uh, nobody liked at the time. And then, you know, taking a revisionist approach to it. Those are our favorite movies to talk about. And sometimes we'll look at a film that, you know, did really well box office wise, but the critics hate it. And we say, hey, you know, does that change in in 2023 or 2024, right? But yeah, I mean, I hope that answers the question. If we run across the same issue, a lot of times we start looking at who, you know, like, what is the studio that produced it? Do we know anything about the distribution company? Do we know anything about the director? Yeah, what was um, the director's previous uh, budgets and what were his, the ones after where would that fall in line and, and sort of that deal as well. Yeah. And and sometimes it comes down to, you know, if the director had a, uh, a hit beforehand and then they go into their next movie, you, you can pretty much guarantee they got a bigger budget. Right. So um, the, the good news is we have the internet now, whether or not the, the data is always hundred percent accurate um, is questionable, but of the movies we've, we've talked about, we've been pretty lucky to at least find either exact information on budgets or comparables pretty easily um, to come up with that narrative of, you know, how did it do when it released? And and we've read the article. We know that Rotten Tomatoes has been, has been manipulated by many of marketing firms and many of people. We understand that, but we need a number that we can easily say it's this and this, and that's what we use, but we know it's been manipulated. Yeah. <laughs> I, I mean, it's a hobby folks. We're not getting paid yeah. for this. I'm <laughs> okay. Yes. We uh we might we might do some commercials for things that we like like Swedish Fish or La Colum Coffee, but uh, that's not because you know our intent then would be just to get free coffee and Swedish Fish, but I don't know if that's going to happen. Um, I would work for free coffee. You know, I would too. At this point, I'm I'm with you. Um, do you know how much I spend a month on coffee, Troy? I I do because I've been to your <laughs> house. <laughs> I feel like uh, when I stay over, I'm staying at a Starbucks. Um, and it's easy to know what to get you for Christmas. It's just more coffee. It's how he launders the money. Yeah, it's all expense now. Like he's, it's, it's all going through the coffee. That's right. Um, 
yeah, no. Hey, Patrick, I thank you so much. I, I know you're busy and you're coming off of just getting healthy um, with the COVID stuff. And um, thank God we're not all in the same room because I don't need to be sick. You two <laughs> keep your germs to yourself. But uh, really, man, thanks. Thanks for reaching out. Thanks for listening. I, I this Again, we've said this time and time again. Our favorite part of doing this is just meeting new people and then all of a sudden creating a friendship out of it. And th- this is awesome, dude. Yeah, this was super fun, and um, uh, yeah, this was a ton of fun. I, I really appreciate giving that you gave me the opportunity to come on, and we're gonna have to work on trying to figure out where can we get that data, that data, so we can do an exploratory project or we can do a predictive project uh, with my students that I'm working with. So, like that's that's gonna be what we need to continue to work on and try to figure out a way to to get that. I agree. But more importantly, we got to figure out a way to get you back on here and talk about another film because this was so much fun. We loved having you. I appreciate it. I had, I had a blast. So Brad, uh, yes, sir. should we talk about next month? Oh boy. Next month. Jeez. Next um, month. I, I don't know if we want to list the films out because I got a feeling we might have an audible here and there. It's, we do know the next one we're doing though, right? We do. So the, the theme, theme for yeah. we're, the theme that we're doing next month is the biggest bombs. Uh, well, just bombs of 2023, and we have lots of films that we could choose from because 2023. There's a lot of films that bombed. Um, so we are doing for our first film. We are doing DC's The Flash. Oh boy, yeah. Um, so Brad got to pick two. Or he's he's programming two shows. I'm programming two shows. Brad's up maybe first and second. Don't know. Because um, we're trying to get some people to participate on this as well. And um, I think it's safe to say that there's comic book movie fatigue in 2023. And we have a plethora of comic book movies to choose from. Is that accurate? That is very accurate. So uh, you chose The Flash. I did. Okay. Too bad you guys don't have uh, five weeks in December because we you can probably do a lot more. <laughs> hey, spoiler alert! In later months, we're also doing 2023 films because we talked about how many or there were and how we should do those. So yeah, we could probably the spend ones we all don't of... get around to. They'll be soon. <laughs> yeah, the, I mean, to be honest, we might squeeze two in one week because we found a loophole. But uh, yeah, it, it'll be interesting. We're trying to put some stuff together, but we know we're going to talk about the Flash next week. It was one of the biggest summer bombs. And it gives us a chance to really, I don't know, talk about that superhero fatigue and is it real and what happens as a result of this. But more importantly, you know, was 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 Flash just, I don't know, was it a good film and didn't get a fair shake? Was it a Flash in the pan? Or was it a Flash in the pan? I like that. There you go. Um, And we're we're starting to do programming for, for next year. So, Brad, how do they get a hold of us to either share their thoughts on the movie we talked about tonight or give us suggestions for the list that we're putting together? That is notabombpod at gmail.com, or you can head over to notabombpodcast.com and hit the contact us button, or hit us up on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. Yes, and uh, we've got one more special edition coming out. Is that right? Yeah, we're going to record tomorrow. Like I said, I have been deathly ill, so you guys have been kindly enough to let me heal up before we try to talk, because even now, my voice sounds not as bad, but Boy, yesterday, the day before, I sounded like you sounded terrible. I had sounded like I uh, smoked cigarettes for since I was like 13. So, yeah. Yeah. So uh, we still have experiment number 11 to do. 
which um, thanks killing and thanks killing three. Oh boy, yeah. And then uh, we're gonna announce what the twelfth experiment is, which and um, then we're never doing this again. <laughs> yeah. Uh, thank you, everybody who has have just sent us messages, emails, everything else, telling us how much you love Breaking Brad. We can't do it another year. We're it's we're gonna take it. We have decided we're gonna take a year off. We're gonna do something else. Yes. We're gonna take at least a year off. And then maybe we'll have a season two. Yeah, I don't think it's gonna be called reanimate Brad because we need to reanimate all of us. Because I, yeah. I gotta be honest, um, it was touch and go whether or not I even watched another movie again. I thought it was gonna take up like knitting or something as a hobby. Ooh. Um yeah, some of those broke. But um uh I think is that all the housekeeping? Are we done? That is. Okay. Uh friends oh. of the show, Troy. Oh yeah, see, we're always forgetting some. Yeah. Uh Gentleman's Guide to the Midnight Cinema, watch get plus the VHS files. Like Josh said, they're coming back soon. Night of the Living Podcast, Backlook Cinema Podcast, The Mixtape Podcast, and Raiders of the Podcast. And Troy, what is the YouTube channel that people should also check out? Uh, now for something a little bit different from our good friend, John. Correct. Uh, Patrick, is there anything that you think everybody should be paying attention to, listening to, or anything that you want to promote? You know, our I I, I don't. I, I'm not a part of a podcast or anything like that, so I'm I'm good. I'm just... Wow, a white guy not on a podcast. Well, congratulations. (laughs) (laughs) Might be the last one. I'm just enjoying being here. This has been great. Well, you you can now say you're on a podcast because we're going to have you back a bunch. Um, The resume builder. Awesome. We loved having you. Okay, folks, I don't know if you're listening in the morning, the afternoon, or evening. Thank you for downloading the episode and playing along. Come back next week, and we're going to talk about some of the biggest bombs in December. Uh, not in December. In December, we're going to talk about some of the biggest bombs in 2023. There. You know, I, I have an English degree, and I can't even say things right. You got there. You got there. I, I got there. I got there. It was it was the long road. But, uh, yeah, we'll, we'll check you then, and uh, happy holidays. Don't lose your head. <laughs>